Hello everyone and welcome back to Ear Read This. My name's Ash and today's podcast is a follow-up to yesterday's episode on Shakespeare's sonnets. If you haven't listened to that one yet, I highly recommend you do. In it, I was talking about the 1609 quarto of Shakespeare's sonnets and was joined by my very special guest, Sir Stanley Wells. Stanley has been described as our greatest authority on Shakespeare's life and work. His many books about Shakespeare and his world include Shakespeare, the Poet and His Plays, Shakespeare for All Time, and Shakespeare and Co, a book about the playwright's contemporaries, which we touch on towards the end of today's interview. For the most part, however, we are talking about Stanley's most recent publication, All the Sonnets of Shakespeare, co-authored with Paul Edmondson. I started off by asking how their idea to approach the sonnets chronologically first came about. It first came to us, we were doing a class, we were doing an MA class with students from the Shakespeare Institute three years or so ago. Mm. And at the end of that, I said, wouldn't it be interesting to have an edition of the sonnets which printed them not in the order in which they first appeared, but in the order in which they were written? And I agreed it would be extremely interesting. Uh, and then mm. I told them that to, to realise that Shakespeare wrote sonnets within plays too. So that added to our plan that we would pr- print what the title of the book says, all the sonnets of Shakespeare. We would attempt to publish them in, in the order in which they was writ- were written uh, as a way of revealing the, 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 the development of Shakespeare's use of the form and also the development of Shakespeare's extremely autobiographical, very intimate poems, detailed relationships, mm. which sometimes are simultaneously between a man on the one hand and a woman on the other. Two loves I have, one of them begins, of comfort and despair. Uh, One Mm. of the people he loves gives him comfort, the other gives him sorrow, makes him despair. Uh, And in that case, it's perfectly clear that that the speaker of the sonnet, if we believe it is Shakespeare personally, as I myself do, is bisexual, is having sexual relationships with a male and a female. This, of course, is something that pe- many people are reluctant to, to admit uh, on, I suppose, moral grounds. But I think that the opening up in recent years of ideas about sexuality and about the morality of sexuality, I think it's more easy for people to accept these, to my mind, undeniable readings of these poems and to see them as revelations of Shakespeare's personal life rather than simply of something that he is imagining uh, on behalf of other people. I, I was going to ask you on, on that point, why, why, why do you think that specifically the, um, the idea of Shakespeare's bisexuality hasn't been as popular as, say, the theory that he, he might be gay? or I think people have been reluctant to believe uh, things that they might regard as reprehensible in Shakespeare's sexuality. Mm. I, I, I think there have been a sort of whitewashing, uh, a sort of censorship mm. of, of, of attitudes towards the sonnets, wanting him to be impeccable, uh, impeccably conventional in his attitudes to love and to sex. I think that with uh, the opening up of of permissive attitudes to a variety of sexualities, people are being more, very slowly being more willing to, or should be more willing to accept that Shakespeare was not uh, decorous in the Victorian sense of sexuality. Mm. Interesting. I'm not on Twitter much, but I I did notice some feathers ruffled uh, over particularly the dating of certain sonnets in in your book. Have there been any particular 
controversies or, or things people are... Um... Uh, well, some people are denying the whole basic premise of our book. Mm. Uh, but without, of course, Twitter doesn't allow all that much opportunity for extended rational argument. Mm. So what you can get on Twitter is the expressions of prejudice uh, often are very conventional prejudice, just wanting, wanting the status quo of solid criticism mm. rather than being willing to accept uh, new ideas about it. Yeah. Um, I was really interested interested to see the inclusion of the, the sonnet writing, uh, well, the sonnet in Edward III. Um, recently just did a, a podcast about Edward III, and I thought reading it, that scene was the standout scene of the whole, the whole play. It was it's such a funny and immediately memorable scene. Um, could you tell us more about that scene and, and it's sort of it's what it tells us about its, its portrayal of uh, sonnet writing. Well, this the charming scene in Edward III, a play which has only recently been accepted as being partly by Shakespeare. Mm. It's included in the second edition of the Oxford Complete Works, of which I'm general editor. Before then, it had not been printed in any collected Shakespeare. Uh, I, yeah, I was fascinated to see that in that play, Shakespeare, it's in the, in the Shakespeare part of the play, Shakespeare actually portrays somebody trying to write a sonnet, <laughs> does so in a rather humorous way. It's the king, and he gets help, he gets his assistant, his old secretary uh, before him, and says, now come and sit down and help me to write a sonnet to the woman he's wooing, who is herself married, as the king himself is married. So this is an adulterous enterprise, mm. and the poor secretary sits down and, and gets only the first line or so when they're interrupted and it doesn't get written. Uh, but it is a charming scene, which I think is interesting to show Shakespeare portraying somebody doing what he himself was later going to do a great deal of, because Edward III is, is, early, is very early in Shakespeare's career. Uh, so yes, it, 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 it's, it's it's almost an autobiographical scene. Yeah, the uh, as we we've touched on the dark lady and the fair youth have long been source of a lot of biographical speculation and have almost passed into Shakespearean biography. You present a very strong case for this being somewhat of a anachronism, a romantic reading. But what, if any, um, biographical detail can we? look for in the sonnets? I think the sonnets tell us a lot about Shakespeare, about his intimate life. Some of them are almost like confessions made by somebody on the psychiatrist's couch mm. uh, about his sexuality. Uh, some of them are very obscene poems, which again I think is uh, something that people are unwilling to recognise. The fact that one of them, at the end of one of them, he writes about having an erection, about his penis becoming erect and then drooping. Uh, I think people have been unwilling to, to accept that. Of course, they're quite difficult poems, some of them, very difficult poems. And I think a lot of people just uh, assume that, uh, just only read a selection of them. It's interesting that recently Patrick Stewart recorded a lot of the sonnets uh, on Twitter day by day, and he refused to read them because he thought they were too rude. <laughs> well, uh, some of them are very, uh, very sexually uh, explicit in a, in a rather op opaque way. Mm. And this is partly why we, we felt it necessary to include at the back of our book paraphrases of all the sonnets. We, we try to make 
our book as helpful to readers as possible, said uh, when we when we print each sonnet, we also print beneath the sonnet a very short summary of it. But then at the back of the book, we print prose paraphrases of every extract of the book. We felt it was worth doing paraphrases because the poems are often, often difficult. Mm. And in doing so, we realized that we were simplifying the poems because inevitably, if you if you put verse poetry into prose, you're, you're removing some of the poetic resonances, some of the poetic qualities. We, we shared the job. I did some of them, Paul did others. And then we we each revise each other's efforts. Mm. And well, we did our very best to, to make those sonnets, those paraphrases, helpful uh, summaries of the sonnets. Uh, well, not summaries, but helpful paraphrases, uh, line by line, or, or, but in prose, of the sonnets. So we hope that people who find these poems difficult may find that the paraphrase takes them through the basic sense of the poem mm. and helps to, in an overall understanding, at least of its prosaic sense rather than its poetic sense. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask about the, the process of collaboration. Did you, um, I know you've written with Paul Edmondson before, but did you find there were uh, any arguments about the interpretation of any sonnets or the dating perhaps? Uh, no, I don't think we, 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 we didn't quarrel over them. No, I think we, we, we were, we may have had our, uh, had our slight variations of interpretation, but basically we were, but of course we have been thinking about the sonnets together for a long time. Yeah. We published a book about these sonnets in the series of which I'm general editor for Oxford University Press, the Oxford Shakespeare topic series. We published a study of Shakespeare's sonnets in, was it 2002, uh, or was it 2004, I'm not quite sure, uh, in which we'd already started thinking very seriously about the sonnets. Mm. So we, we, we saw eye to eye very much about them. In your view, what what was it, a sp- and this is pure speculation, but what, what was it specifically about the sonnet form that, that held such a lasting um, appeal for Shakespeare? Well, as you say, one can speculate, it's, it's neat, it's a tidy mm. form. It's a compact form. I don't know. Uh, he found it a form in which it was possible to argue. It, 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 the form of the sonnet leads naturally to uh, a conclusion in, in the couplet. He, he obviously found that the sonnet was, for him, uh, the best vehicle for expressing his own personal emotions and and internal arguments sometimes, yeah. because the poems do carry carry the sense of, of a man working things out within himself. Mm. I think the sonnet is conducive to that sort of, uh, of of approach. It's fascinating how how lasting it is with the chronology you present when you look at uh, the verse of Henry the Sixth and how different a playwright he is when he writes The Winter's Tale, and yet the sonnet for that entire time remains so, so such a, a regular form for him. Yes. How how difficult was it when you were sort of hunting through the works of Shakespeare for sonnets? And <laughs> It was quite difficult. I, 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 I took the lead on that with Paul's assistance mm. and I, I must have gone through the complete works at least three times wow. checking on this <laughs> because sometimes there are what you might call sonnet fragments. Indeed, we, we admit some of those into our edition. For example, when Beatrice comes out of hiding 
after the, the overhearing scene, she speaks what we call a foreshortened sonnet. Mm. Uh, it's not a complete 14-line poem. It lacks, the, the, as it were, the first four lines. And one, of, one or two of them are unrhyming sonnets. Cressida speaks in unrhymed sonnets. But we felt that they were close enough to the basic sonnet form to, for us to feel confident in offering them as Shakespeare's use of sort of form within the place. We almost miss one of them. <laughs> uh, Helen in All's Well at Ends Well speaks, uh, well, has a verse letter in the form of a sonnet, and that only got into the book at the very last minute. We live in, in anxiety that somebody else might find yet another <laughs> sonnet that we, that we haven't, haven't identified. Unearth a slim volume of sonnets part two. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> All the other sonnets. All the other sonnets, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Ones we didn't get. Finally, I wanted to ask if there was uh, one sonnet you were particularly interested in, and if there was if there was one you wanted to read. Well, I first got interested in interested in the sonnets when I was a schoolboy, mm. and you know, first time stirrings of sexual emotion, of love and you know, friendship, and so on. And that made me, I, I went to the sonnets, and one of them does still resonate with me in that way. Would you like me to read that? Oh, please, yeah. Yes, a sonnet that uh, means a lot to me, that I've often uh, felt to be relevant. It's on 29. It goes like this. When, in disgrace with fortune and men's eyes, I all alone beweep my outcast state, and trouble deaf heaven with my bootless cries, and look upon myself and curse my fate, wishing me like to one more rich in hope, featured like him, like him with friends possessed, desiring this man's art and that man's scope, with what I most enjoy, contented least, yet in these thoughts myself almost despising, haply I think on thee. And then my state, like to the lark at break of day, arising from sullen earth, sings hymns at heaven's gate. For thy sweet love remembered, such wealth brings, that then I scorn to change my state with kings. Marvellous. Thank you for that. Thank you. I love the uh, trouble heaven with my bootless cries. Every, everyone's felt that at some point. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, the phrase bootless cries also occurs in the play of Edward III. Really? Yeah, uh, we missed that, unfortunately. When we, in our second edition, we'll include that. Because yeah. one of the things we do uh, uh, include in our notes is comparisons with, 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 with plays, with situations and with phrases in the plays. And the phrase bootless cries is one of several. And, and Edward III also includes, we do get this, a complete line. Mm. Uh, lilies at Festa smell far worse than weeds, which yeah. is the last line of one of the songs that occurs in Edward III. So there is this degree of interplay between the plays and the sonnets. Quite a few other examples of that too. Oh, well, that's fascinating. Um, Stanley, thank you so much for, uh, for, for joining us. It's a real privilege to, to get to talk to you. Um, Welcome. Good. Um, I, I, I love the book and I've, I've, I love good. several of your books. Um, I've particularly, oh, <laughs> um, I recently read uh, uh, Shakespeare and Co. Uh, which oh, yes. About um, Shakespeare's contemporaries, which are fantastic. Um, it's the kind of book I've been wanting to read for ages. They're so often sidelined, you know, 
There's a there'll be a, a just a sentence or so going. Oh, and there was also you know Bowman Fletcher Johnson. <laughs> to to actually see them and uh, and see where they came, which ones were the elder statesmen and which ones were um, you know the young books at, towards the end of Shakespeare's life. It's uh, terrific. Yes, I'm glad to hear you say that. I I, I I I'm quite proud of that book, and it does provide. Uh, it's good, I think, to have a book which uh, sees Shakespeare as one among a company of dramatists. Yeah. There's not, not, not just a solo artist, but someone who was acting, reacting with Johnson and Marlowe and Webster and so on. Good. Glad you like that. And if you'd like to get yourself a copy of either Shakespeare and Co. or all the sonnets of Shakespeare, you can do so by following the links I've left in the podcast description box. That's all we have time for for today. I want to say a huge thank you again to Stanley Wells. It was an absolute delight for me to get to speak to him, and I hope you've enjoyed listening to these two episodes. We'll be back very soon, but in the meantime, happy reading. (laughs) 